Then open in your Bibles uh, to uh, the letter of uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon is our text today. We will read it from beginning to end. And we'll be looking at it in its totality. So, the letter of Paul to Philemon. If you're using your pew Bibles, it is on page 1000. Beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your, owing, of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so thus concludes the reading of God's word for this morning. Now, the letter before us today is, as is stated in its title, written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
Written most likely from his imprisonment in Rome around 60 AD. Written to a man by the name Philemon. A convert under Paul's ministry. Again, most likely in Ephesus. Which was uh, a city nearby to Colossae. Philemon being from Colossae. In fact, being a, a host of the church that had gathered in that city to worship. Philemon was an esteemed man, a wealthy man, a man who had servants, bondservants, slaves. And so Paul writes about to Philemon about one such person, a third man, Onesimus, a, a, what was, who was a runaway slave, being sent back to Philemon by Paul with this letter in hand for an opportunity to be reconciled with his master. Now, as we look at this text this morning, I want us to do so through the lens of Christian fellowship. Because if anything else, this is a letter, a case study, a window if we may, into what Christian fellowship looks like. It reveals to us some principles on which Christian fellowship, a fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, rests on. And so we look at it through the topic of Christian fellowship, uh, fellowship and especially the restoration of Christian fellowship. Uh, a topic, an issue Timely, both in the wider context of our culture, a culture that's uh, marked by division, but also within the reality of local congregations, of a body of followers of Jesus Christ who have been redeemed by His grace and yet are still living in sinful flesh. And so, as such, still struggle with the ramifications of sin in their lives. Having seen their relationship with God fractured by sin, consequently having their relationship with people around them fractured by sin. We know only too well that in this life, even in this congregation, we are both being sinned against and sin against others. And maybe even today you find yourself in a conflict with uh, fellow believers. And so our text gives us elements of reconciliation. What needs to take place? What happens in order that two or more followers of Jesus become reconciled and their relationship of peace and unity gets restored? And so we will look at our text, under three headings, three elements of reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, and mediation. Repentance, forgiveness, and mediation. And it so happens that we will look at each point through each of the three men involved in the writing of this letter. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. So our first point, repentance. And here we uh, take a look at Onesimus. The, the runaway slave of Philemon. Now when we think of repentance, I believe our words betray us. 
When we think about it the way that the world thinks about it, the way that our instinct drives us to think about it, we usually do one of two things. We either uh, do what we could call feeling forgiveness or we or word forgiveness. Feeling forgiveness when, you know, we sometimes say, I really feel sorry. I really do. I feel remorse for what I did. I feel, I feel maybe self-pity for what I did. And we often say, well, what else do you want me to say? I, I, I said I feel sorry about what I did. What else can I do? Other times we say, I'm sorry, expecting that that's all that is required of us. That's all that is needed. Whatever we did, we just come to the person we offended and say, I'm sorry. And if they press against that, we say, well, what else can I do? I said, I'm sorry. And yet, when we look at the Bible, and especially at our text tomorrow, in, to, our, to our text tomorrow morning, we see that though not neglecting the importance of feelings and words, biblical repentance goes beyond that and is, in fact, deeply practical. One particular way that this practical aspect of repentance is worked out in our text is that true repentance is willing to face the consequences of its actions, whatever the cost. True repentance is willing to face the consequences of its sinful actions or words, no matter the cost. We see this in Onesimus as our example of this principle. Now, Onesimus met Paul as a runaway slave uh, of Philemon. He, uh, having run away, he met Paul by God's providence and, as the text tells us, became a believer, a follower of Jesus under Paul's ministry, under his oversight, under his care. And now, Onesimus is being sent back to his master, Philemon. And we could put ourselves in Onesimus' shoes and find that that's not an easy thing to do. Onesimus could have come to Paul and said, Paul, I do feel sorry for what I did. I do feel sorry for the fact that I betrayed the social contract of that day between a master and his servant. For good or for ill, I betrayed it. I feel sorry. Onesimus could even have said, if, if need be, I can write a letter to Philemon saying I'm sorry, but Paul, what good would it do for me to actually go there, face the man, risk, whatever reaction might come my way, where I could stay here and continue ministering to you with renewed vigor, renewed heart, with this fresh faith as you minister the ministry of the gospel. And yet we see none of that in, in our letter. What we see is that Paul is sending Onesimus, and that must by necessity have included willingness on, the, on Onesimus's part to go and bring the letter of reconciliation 
to Philemon, not knowing how this man will react, not knowing if he will receive him, if he will forgive him, or whether he will submit him to labor harder than before. With the faith that Onesimus has received through the ministry of Paul and by the grace of God, comes the willingness to face the consequences of Onesimus' actions. We see another example in the Bible of this principle in the famous parable of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 25, the prodigal son, the man who requests his father's inheritance while the father is still alive and then goes and wastes that inheritance with, with women and, 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 and in, in parties, that man comes to a point of realization and says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see a man who's at a point in his life when he's willing to face the outcome of his decisions, sinful, disrespectful decisions, foolish decisions. True repentance is practical, and one way it is practical is it faces the consequences of its own sinful actions. But what is it that stands between us and that practical step? Because if you're honest with you today... And if you've had opportunities to offend others in any way, you'll know full well how hard it is to actually live this out. This is one thing that so often stands between us and true repentance, is that fear of owning up, facing the consequences of what our confession, public confession, might do. There is a sense of of self-preservation, That's why we so love and wish that repentance would only be feeling or or speaking. Because that's in a way easy. To feel remorse, to feel self-pity for yourself is easy. To say I'm sorry is easy compared to actually confessing your sin and facing the outcome, the consequences of that sin. And the reason this is so, because you see, oftentimes, that fear of exposure, that fear of, of facing the reality, has to do with our loves, with, with, with what our hearts love more than God, or the deepest loves of our souls. We might be afraid that when we, when we stand up to the challenge, to the task, that our possessions, our, our status, our image, our relationship, perception, the way that other people perceive us, will be affected. And so we fear to lose our image in the eyes of others. We fear to lose our prestige. We fear maybe to lose even our position at work. Our possessions that might be affected. Should we own up to what we've done in our sin? So the question then is, how do we overcome the obstacle? How do we actually begin practicing repentance that is practical? 
And the answer is found in verse 11. In the, the phrase that I would argue is central to the whole letter and yet is in the uh, English Standard Version uh, in parentheses where Paul says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus has undergone a transformation. He was not the, the, the best servant in the house of Philemon. He was probably a lazy, laid-back, unfaithful servant. And yet Paul says, not that he has somehow become a perfect servant. No, he has become a servant of God. He, her, his heart has been transformed. In other words, the loves of his heart have been reordered from self-preservation, from self-protection to other orientation. And the reason this is possible is that Onesimus' greatest love and his greatest fear have become the same thing. Onesimus, you see, knows that the one person whose opinion really matters, that the one person whose love really matters, is not against him, but for him. His love of God and his fear of God have become the greatest love, the greatest fear that he has connecting and merging into one, allowing this man to stand up and deliver the letter and to face the consequences of his sinful actions. That is repentance. And if reconciliation would take place, such repentance is a necessary element. But it's not, that's not all that's necessary. And that brings us to our second point, And that is of forgiveness. And again, when we may think about our instincts, the way that uh, people at large, the world at large thinks of forgiveness... We could say that we find the same two principles, the feelings forgiveness and the words forgiveness. We might um, say we forgive, and we often do this, don't we? We say, I forgive you, and yet keep tabs. We hold grudges against the very person that we say we forgive. It's words forgiveness. One author illustrates this from his counseling experience, saying that he was, uh, there was a, a woman he was counseling, and she said whenever um, she did something, in, uh, whenever there was conflict in their marriage, she would get a history lesson. Her husband would bring every single thing she's ever done to offend him. That's an example of words forgiveness. I forgive you, yet I keep tabs behind my back. And that's how, by and large, forgiveness functions in the world. There's also forgiveness that is feeling forgiveness, where we are simply unaware of the deeper, greater impact of someone else's sin, not only against us, but ultimately against God. And as long as we don't feel that it's a big deal, we just say, it's fine. It's fine. No need to forgive. No, no need to repent. It's okay. You're good. But that again is a distortion. That again is based on how we perceive things. Whereas oftentimes the sin is much, is much graver and um, transcends its own effect on us and affects others. Ultimately God himself. 
So how do we forgive? How do we forgive in a way that doesn't simply forget, doesn't simply um, pretend to forgive, but how do we forgive in a lasting, lasting manner, lasting way? If such forgiveness is to take place, two elements, two, two things have to be uh, present, two things we see as we look at Philemon and the way Paul speaks and addresses Philemon. First, we must have God's perspective, heavenly perspective towards others. We have to see others through God's eyes. We have to see other believers, other followers of Jesus, the way God, the way Christ sees them. In verses 18, 8 to 16 of our text, Paul reveals his view of Onesimus. Uh, the treatment he gives Onesimus as this otherworldly treatment of others, otherworldly perspective, based not on the earthly record of the person in front of us, but on their stance before God. You'll notice that Paul calls Onesimus' very heart. And it's easy for us to overlook this, thinking that, well, this simply means that he has deep, friendly affections for Onesimus. But this word heart actually literally means entrails, the intestines. Paul, what Paul is saying, and the, he uses this word three times in the letter, he says he means that he's, Onesimus is so precious and he's so bound with Onesimus in Christ that as though he is sending back to Philemon his very own self. Philemon, how you treat this man is how you, in essence, treat me. With your actions and words towards this man, you're essentially declaring your attitude towards me, says Paul. And that's, that stands in extremely sharp contrast to how the world of that day would have seen Onesimus. Now, we look at this from the 21st century, and it might be just too hard for us to get past the reality that they were uh, slaves and owners, bondservants and owners. Whatever way they got into that predicament in that relationship, it is hard for us to go past that. But in that society, that was a social contract that was to be honored, that was held highly. And whoever broke it, especially a, a bondservant who broke it, deserved a severe punishment. In other words, while Onesimus might have been a, a sl sloppy worker, a useless fellow before his conversion, after running away, he has not gotten more useful or less useless. He's got from useless to completely pathetic and worthless in the eyes of the world because he is a runaway slave deserving punishment Deserving retribution. That's not how Paul treats him. That's not how Paul sees him. Paul sees him as a man renewed in spirit through faith by God's grace. A man who's precious in God's eyes. A man who is, as it were, closer to Paul now than his own flesh and blood. 
You see, Paul is calling Philemon to see Onesimus the same way, to see him, as we read, no longer as a bondservant, verse 16, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Receive him, Paul says, as you receive me. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. What is Paul saying? Paul is pointing back to the reality that he is God's gift in in Philemon's life. Philemon's salvation came about through the ministry of Paul. And so Paul is God's gracious gift to Philemon. And Paul wants Philemon to receive Onesimus the same way. To see Onesimus, the wrongdoer, as God's gift. Actively choosing to set aside his wrongdoing and to forgive. That's one thing that we need if forgiveness is to take place. To develop a heavenly perspective toward uh, the other. But even more importantly, if, if that is to be the case, something else has to happen. And that is we have to remember and know our own story and stands before the Lord. How did we come to the point that we are in? Because how we treat others inevitably reflects our own heart, our own attitudes, our own understanding of who we are before God. And this is reminded to us by the story of another parable of Jesus, of the unforgiving servant, who, having received insurmountable grace and pardon from his master, from the king, then goes out and starts choking his fellow servant for pennies. And that shows us the inconsistency, but that also points to the reality that if we are to treat, how we treat others shows how we understand ourselves. And so the, 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 the other side of the same coin, as it were, is not only that we see others the way God sees them, but we have to see ourselves the way God sees us. Paul, in a very tactful, tasteful manner, reminds Philemon where he himself comes from. You see, in verse 19, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your own, owing me even your own self. Why would he say that? Well, he's, he's hinting at something. He's reminding Philemon, essentially saying, look, the world, the, the society at large might look at you and see a respectable honor, um, uh, a man worthy of honor, someone who's abiding by customs, by rules, someone who's a worthy and, and fruitful and beneficial member of this society. And yet when the Lord sees you, He knows where you came from. You were a sinner against God. You were, as it were, a runaway slave, bondservant, spiritually speaking, before God at one time and have received just as much grace. You were in need of just as much grace as Onesimus was and is. And you have received it. And your worth is not how the, world in, how the world sees you, but how God sees you. And that, you see, removes all sense of boasting, of superiority, of entitlement in relationship 
to one another, even when the offender truly and really offended us, and we are in the right, what reminds us of our true stance is the reality that we, were it not for the grace of God, would owe Him even more, without the ability to ever pay it back. This shows again that, that forgiveness is not superficial, it is not merely words or feelings, but it is an overflow of a relationship with the living God. He has forgiven you and I far more than you and I will ever need to forgive. And you see, while this does not, uh, this does not make forgiveness lighthearted, but what it does, it, gives, it, it, it is a power to release us from grudge, It is a power to uh, hand over the debts that others have before us to God. Especially when the offender has no intention of seeking seeking forgiveness or is unable to seek forgiveness, you still have to deal with it between you and God. You still have to come to that point of readiness to forgive, of handing it over to the Lord for His judgment. And for that to happen, you still need to do these two things, to have these two perspectives. Heavenly perspective towards the others and the heavenly perspective that God has towards you. But now, how do we make sense of all of this? And this, uh, to answer that question, it, uh, we come to our third point. Mediation. We come to the third person, the third actor in this, in this situation that's before us, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul is acting as a mediator. A mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. And Paul really here is functioning as a son of his heavenly father. If you remember in Matthew 5, in the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So Paul is like father, like son. He is imitating his heavenly father. And I want to propose that mediation is necessary. And you might, in any conflict, in any conflict between followers of Jesus, mediation is necessary. And you might be thinking, well, uh, sometimes there's only two of us. We don't always need a third person. Doesn't the Bible say it in Matthew 18? First go to the person and seek to, to resolve your conflict privately. And that happens oftentimes, and we don't need a third party. Well, the reality is that even without that third party, you still need mediation. Mediation is always necessary. And we'll, in order for us to, to see that, we need to break down quickly what Paul is doing in this letter. He's doing three things. First, he's identifying with the offender. Verse 20, Paul says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, that word heart, refresh me. We've already seen that Paul identifies with Philemon as though Philemon was his very own, Onesimus, I'm sorry, was his very own self. And this is where Paul actually is playing on words. He's, he's using, he's calling Philemon, he's challenging him to be useful, to be uh, profitable. Where the, the name Onesimus actually means profitable. 
So in some sense, Paul is saying, be profitable in treating this person who's, by God's grace, profitable to me. So Paul is siding with the offender. He's calling him uh, Philemon to refresh his own, very own heart. Just like he did uh, with the hearts of other believers. Secondly, Paul bears the debt of the offender. In verse 18, if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that he says, If he has wronged you, that is, Nesmus wronged you, Philemon, at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And this is where Paul is, though, takes up the pen from his amanuensis, from the man writing on his behalf, and says, I'm writing this, I'm signing this with my own hand. I will repay it. And this is not Paul suggesting that Onesimus might or might not owe something. This is a polite way, Paul's way of saying, whatever Onesimus owes you, Philemon, if that is standing between you and this man, I will repay it, whatever he owes you. Paul bears the debt of the offender. He recognizes that restitution has to be made and that the offender, Onesimus, is in no place to to make it. Thirdly, Paul is making intercession on behalf of the offender. Again, the same same part of our letter, uh, of our text today. Verse 19, Paul says, "...to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self." Earlier in the letter, Paul says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Paul is indirectly hinting at his apostolic authority. Authority, God-given authority to come to Philemon and say, You do this. A word from God, you do this. This is not a, 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 a request, this is a command. And yet Paul does not do that. Rather, he brings up, he hints at his status with Philemon, primarily uh, through the reality of God using Paul to save Philemon. Paul is saying, remember, I am instrumental in your life. I have a role that I play in your life. And that role is of, of much significance by God's grace. He's bringing up his status, as it were, with Philemon. He appeals based on his own merit. Who is Paul to Philemon? Someone who is pouring himself out for the sake of the gospel and the church. He is Philemon's his spiritual father and he appeals to that status on behalf of Onesimus. Why are these three things important? Well, again, we said Paul is imitating his father. And Paul is doing this. We, we need to understand it. Uh, that he's doing something for the reason that is crucial here. If we understand that, we understand why mediation is necessary and how it plays out in our relationships. And for us to get what Paul is doing here and and why he's doing it, let me just briefly draw your attention to uh, an Old Testament passage, a famous passage in Isaiah 53, verse 12. This is the famous a prophecy of the suffering servant where Christ is prophesied to come, the Messiah, but he's not described as, described as this lofty king, but rather as a rejected and suffering servant. Uh, and yet at the end of this chapter, at the end of this prophecy, uh, we see, we read in, in verse 12, 
that he is exalted because of his humiliation for the sake of others. This suffering servant is exalted. And it says here, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you begin to see what's happening here? Paul is imitating Christ. In this passage, we see that Christ was numbered with the transgressors. He sides with the transgressor. He bore the sins of many. He's, he's paying the penalty. He's, he's uh, bearing the debt of the offender. And finally, he intercedes for the transgressors before the holy God on their behalf. Paul is imitating Christ Jesus. And he's doing that because he knows that in order for us to be peacemakers, for us to mediate for us to be those who do everything to pursue peace between others or between them and others. For, us to, for that to take place, we have to have this deep and lasting knowledge that our cosmic conflict with God has been resolved and has been mediated. We have to understand, as Paul does, that there stands a barrier between humanity and its maker, holy God. That this holy God is in full right to judge people who rebelled against him. Who chose to serve themselves rather than God. Who exchanged their own fleeting pleasures for the pleasure of being worshippers of God. We have to have this ingrained in our very core of being, in our bones, the reality that we ourselves are unable to set our record free, that we ourselves are the runaway slaves on a cosmic proportion, and that we needed that mediator to come, someone to intercede for us, someone to pay the penalty, someone to side with us. Unworthy of mercy and worthy of judgment. And so if we are to be able to resolve earthly conflicts, we must understand that mediation is necessary. We must live in the presence of that reality that for us, that mediation ultimately has taken place in Christ Jesus. That mediation culminated on the cross has taken place, resolving our, resolving our a conflict between us and the living God. If our for repentance, which is costly, is to be practical, bold, as we've seen, we have to realize that as our, this cosmic conflict is resolved, we have God, the one whom we offended, the only one ultimately whom we offended on our side because of who, what Christ did. Only then do we have the boldness and courage to stand up and say, well, if that's done, if that's accounted for, then whatever else is coming my way, I can live with because the one opinion that matters, the one judgment that matters is in my favor. And nothing, nothing can change that. 
Should I go to prison for my stupidity and foolishness? Should I lose the love and respect of my children if I confess my sins? Should I see my spouse walk away? Should I lose my job? Whatever it may be, whatever the price in this world I need to pay to repent. If God is for me, who can be against me? And to forgive, if you've ever been truly offended, you know how hard it is to forgive. And the only way to truly, lastingly, meaningfully forgive is to see what has been forgiven on the cross, what has been done on your behalf. To be Paul-like mediators between ourselves and others and between other parties in the church. To imitate Christ and to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We have to understand what it costs this mediator, this Jesus Christ, to be in this position, to be able to accomplish that. That he became an offender on our behalf against God is an unthinkable thing within the life of the Holy Trinity. That the Son would be an offender against the Father is unthinkable, and yet for our sake in his human nature, the Son became exactly that he paid the penalty he was abandoned he was left for judgment he was to drink the cup of wrath so that our offenses could be pardoned and so that we could be called to use Paul's words the very heart of God so that we would be united to Christ and would be called the children of the living God. And insofar as we understand that, not only with our minds, but insofar that penetrates deeply through contemplation and prayer into our hearts, to that extent, we will be able to repent, to forgive, and most of all, to be the children of our Father as we pursue peace reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ. May the Lord grant us just that. Let's pray. A gracious God, let us learn from our teacher, from our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, not in a legalistic sense so that we would get better with you, but out of this deep knowledge that we are right in your sight because of Jesus Christ. And so we can too now learn by the grace and the work of the Spirit, learn from him, be enabled and equipped to, to apply those, those lessons into our daily lives and to be imitators of Jesus Christ and of his apostle Paul as we strive for peace even when it costs us everything we can uh, fathom everything that we esteem dear Lord we treat and esteem you as a greater more precious treasure than anything else in this world by the grace of the work of Jesus Christ.
And so we are enabled then to strive for peace. Please grant us that privilege. We pray. Amen.